Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Hi, I'm Dr. Dean Mitchell. I wanted to, before we started the podcast today, to dedicate this podcast to a true hero, Dr. James Mahoney, who passed away this past week from the coronavirus. There was an article in the New York Times, which was really essentially an obituary, how Dr. James Mahoney was truly loved, not only by all of his patients, but all the doctors he trained at Kings County Hospital Medical Center. There were doctors obviously in tears when they they saw that Dr. Mahoney passed away at their institution from the complications of COVID-19. Many of the students would say, I want to be like him when I become a full-fledged doctor. And that to me is the highest compliment. It actually gives me chills. I've been fortunate in my career also to have somebody like a Dr. James Mahoney teach me. And I think medicine is at that much more of a loss when we lose somebody like him. So again, for Dr. Mahoney and all those frontline workers who are giving so much, I want to dedicate today's podcast to them. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. In the past two weeks, the podcast has completed its trilogy on COVID-19, and I thought we would move on to some other medical topics. However, then came the next wave of bad news. Children were developing severe complications of the COVID-19 infection. In New York State, where I practice, actually in New York City, as of May 8th, there were 73 reported cases of COVID-19 in children, but in New York City, three children had died. This is obviously in comparison to 13,724 adults, but still, it's a heartbreak. And the cause of these deaths was attributed to a new complication being called pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome due to the COVID-19 virus. More so, a dramatic case was just reported in the New York Times on May 18th about a boy named Jack McMorrow. Jack's case was really horrible but instructive in what many parents really need to think about. First, any fever or illness, you really have to think about the possibility of COVID in your child. And the second thing, which we're going to get to with Dr. Friedman, is seeking what I call proper medical attention immediately. In one aspect, Jack's case was similar to other children who initially had been exposed to coronavirus but didn't notice anything really significant except for maybe a a mild rash or a stomachache, which would typically resolve and they would be fine. But then a few weeks later, Jack's symptoms took a turn for the worse. He had high fevers, sore throat, he could barely move. His parents took him first to an urgent care facility that tested him for COVID-19 and it was negative. The urgent care sent him home on antibiotics. However, a few weeks later, he began to notice what he described as fire in his veins. Indescribably ill, he couldn't move, he couldn't eat. His parents brought him to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, where he was evaluated and started on IV fluids. And then he was so ill, they decided to transfer him to the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital right at their facility. It was there that his COVID test did come back positive, and he showed antibodies to the virus. His course was quite treacherous, but he did receive intravenous steroids, which seemed to help him turn the corner. So now the original silver lining of this whole epidemic that children don't get severe COVID infections appears to be debunked. So what are parents to do? 
Fortunately, my guest today, Dr. Ken Friedman, is a pediatric cardiologist who works at the renowned Boston Children's Hospital, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and a member of their Kawasaki Disease Program. I'm interested to hear a lot, I'm sure you will be also, about Dr. Friedman's experience with Kawasaki disease and how it may help us understand how this new pediatric syndrome related to the coronavirus should be evaluated and treated. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Friedman to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. It's good to have you. So Dr. Friedman, the first thing, actually, I really want to get to is logistics, honestly. In the case that I just described, I just would like your perspective. When should a parent bring a child to a children's hospital versus, quote, a regular hospital or an urgent care center? Today, there are lots of urgent care centers, and it concerns me that they are not prepared to handle these kind of cases. And possibly even regular hospitals are where they don't have the same specialist equipment medications that a children's hospital has like yours. So would you mind commenting on that a bit? Yeah, I agree that the, the sickest patients with this syndrome definitely need um, multidisciplinary care in places that have uh, pediatric or cardiac ICUs in case they get very sick and need um, consultation from multiple pediatric subspecialists, including cardiologists, rheumatologists, infectious disease. So I definitely feel like the, the sickest of kids need to find their way to the major children's hospitals. I think it's, in general, it's always hard to screen out those who are um, mild or moderately sick and don't need that level of care. So I think starting with the pediatrician is probably always the best first option um, for children who are well enough to be at home. And for those who are extraordinarily sick, then um, seeking their closest major hospital would be my advice. You know, you know I'm just thinking, I don't know if you guys are doing the Boston Children's Center. You know, now I think virtual you know, these televisits are not a bad idea because you also can really see a little bit how the patient looks, right? I mean, if you saw, unfortunately, this patient, Jack, not able to get up to go to the bathroom or in distress, you know, I, I know as doctors, we, we tend to really use a lot of visual clinical diagnostics, honestly, which you can't really pick up on a phone call or hear, say, from a parent, oh, my child looks sick. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the virtual visits are, are helpful and um a pediatric community, at least in the Massachusetts, has largely gone to those um, in the absence of um, being able to do a lot of in-person visits. And I, I do feel like both hearing the history and then being just being able to see the child, are they running around playing? Do they look well? Well, that's right. a child who may have fever but doesn't need to come to an emergency room versus are they lethargic? You know, do they have features um, physically that look like they are dehydrated? Um, those type of things are sometimes fairly obvious and would certainly prompt um, a higher level of care on a more immediate basis. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think, I don't know if you would agree, but you know, one of the things I remember from my really good uh, physicians that trained me was that, you know, and when you're a young doctor, it's hard to appreciate, but they go, over time, you will know what a sick patient looks like. And uh, obviously, I've worked in emergency rooms like you, and that you, you do. And it's like you just notice when someone just really doesn't look right. Although I do trust the parents a lot, you know, and uh, especially the moms, they're pretty smart. And when they're like, when they, they say to you, my, my child does not look right. Something is off. I tend to pay attention really carefully. You know, another follow-up question to that is, do you think, though, in retrospect, are there any labs that could tip off the doctors that are more serious infections in play, such as, I'm going to use some medical lab terms here for the, the listeners, like, like a high sedimentation rate or a high C-reactive protein or even a high ferritin they're finding in adults. Are you noticing that where you are that that can sometimes tip off that an inflammation process is going on even prior to these severe symptoms? 
Yeah, I think a couple of things. Clinically, these patients are presenting with quite high fevers and often quite sick and uh, in many cases with prominent abdominal symptoms, actually, not so much respiratory symptoms. And then in terms of the labs you were mentioning, we're seeing very much the same pattern they're seeing, I think, in adults, which is that the hallmark of this new condition, the uh, multi-system inflammatory disease and syndrome in children is, is marked uh, hyperinflammation. So very high CRPs, very high ferritin levels, often with... Um, uh, elevated D-dimers and low fibrinogen. So there seems to be a hallmark kind of textbook lab pattern as well. Do you think, though, I don't, I don't know if, you're, if anybody's been looking at this, but do you think like possibly early on any of these marks it would start to be elevated or so not until these children are really in full-fledged, you know, distress that these markers are going up so high that somebody would notice? Yeah, I feel like now that it's out there, we have caught some of these patients on the earlier side, only two or three days into their fever. And in those cases, the, the levels of inflammation are pretty high, but not quite as high as, as they would be later on. And certainly we feel like that gives us a better chance to tamp down the inflammation with medications. Yeah, we're gonna um, get I, I think they're climbing. They're high and climbing is what I would say over the first several days. Um, that's a good analogy. You know, and the, uh, look, you know, what's so hard, obviously, for parents, and now we're, we're going to get later to the schools, is that, again, yeah, the, the kids can have some minor or typical you know, viral type of symptoms, you know, and then it, it seems to quiet down a little bit and that other phase kicks in. But, you know, I want to transition to what your group has been studying for many years now at Boston Children's Kawasaki's disease. Now, I'm going to ask you to explain it a little bit to listeners because some people, I'm sure a lot of people have not heard about it until recently. I, I can tell you myself, I've never seen a case of it in all my 30 years of clinical practice. I do immunology. You know, so if you want to describe how Kawasaki's disease presents, and I don't know if you have any like a very memorable case that would resonate with the listeners. So Kawasaki disease is an inflammatory disease that inflames the arteries in the body, which is called a vasculitis. The etiology is still unknown, so the cause we still don't know, but it seems to be an immune response in a genetically susceptible person to something that isn't triggered in their environment, like a virus or a fungus. And so and it shows up clinically as persistent fever. So the, the definition of the syndrome is more than five days of fever and then more than four of five clinical features. And those clinical features are red eyes, rash, um, significant swelling of a, of a lymph node in the neck, swollen or red hands and feet, and then changes to the mouth, tongue, or lips that usually are like cracked lips or what's called a strawberry tongue where the tongue looks red and, and kind of uh, like a strawberry. And so it's a clinical diagnosis. And in Kawasaki disease, the treatment's actually quite similar to what we're treating patients with this well, new I want to ask syndrome. that for you just to jump yeah. in, but everything you just mentioned right now, because you know, we'll do a comparison, couldn't that be like COVID-19? I mean, there, what would be your differential if you... Yeah, so definitely there's, there's overlap. I think there's, we're still learning about the details of the spectrum of illness, but certainly there are patients, a significant number with... COVID positive testing or exposure who are presenting with essentially classic features of Kawasaki disease. And whether that's Kawasaki triggered by COVID or whether it's a Kawasaki-like illness that's, that is COVID-related is a little bit unclear, but essentially they, they are presenting with Kawasaki disease. So let's talk about what your specialty is. Again, if I just remind the listeners, you're a pediatric cardiologist. Meaning, from what I remember, you've done your pediatric residency and then you did a fellowship extra training in cardiology, right? Correct. So Kawasaki's, again, what I remember, and I'll let you explain it, has a very unique cardiology presentation. That's, you know, when, when pediatricians 
are fortunate to maybe capture it early enough and then pull you in to help out. So maybe you could explain the things that you see cardiovascular-wise with um, Kawasaki's disease and maybe also just compare it a little bit to what we're seeing now with COVID. Yeah, so Kawasaki disease is self-limited, meaning it does go away uh, faster if you treat it, but it always goes away. What we worry about is that in the time that the inflammation is going on, it can damage the heart. And the most common and concerning thing is damage the heart, the coronary arteries, which are the blood vessels that supply blood to the heart. They can get enlarged, dilated, and even aneurysmal. And that can predispose children to um, early myocardial infarction or heart attack if it's quite severe. So that's the most common thing in Kawasaki disease. Some children more rarely can have a heart muscle problem where the heart muscle is not pumping well with dysfunction of the heart. And that happens in less than 5% of kids with typical Kawasaki, but it's something we're seeing much more commonly in patients with the new inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID. Okay, so let's let's stop there for a sec because I want to just want to clarify. So again, as a physician, you know, if I was seeing a patient like this and who came, you know, had the presentation that they were sick maybe two, three weeks ago, sore throat, a little stomach ache, they're better. Now there's something clearly going on cardiogenic wise. Now, again, in a child, how would you know that there's coronary artery dilation? Or I know sometimes we get aneurysm. I mean, do they present with are they having chest pain? Is their blood pressure changing? So for the coronary arteries, it's really a diagnostic imaging diagnosis. So it has to be quite severe, so-called giant aneurysms to cause clinical symptoms, which would be related to, to an infarction. So the vast majority of kids have no clinical symptoms, and that, that's why they need echocardiograms to both look at their cardiac function, but even more so to look at their coronary arteries to measure them and compare them to other kids their agents. Well, size. so before you would get called in, then, so the, the, the pediatrician has to have a high suspicion, right? Because you're not really in that front line in their office, they'd have to be calling you up at Boston Children's saying, look, we're concerned this could be a Kawasaki right? Right. They'd usually refer them to the um, emergency department. And then at most major children's centers, it's a kind of multidisciplinary team, usually an infectious disease or rheumatology doctors who helps with the diagnosis side of it. And then a cardiologist who helps with the evaluation of the heart um, piece of it. So yeah, exactly. It has to, you have to have some suspicion for this clinically based on the fever and then the clinical features. And then you would go get a lab testing first and then ultimately an echocardiogram. If this is right. I was going to ask, so the, yeah, so the diagnostics, okay, so an echocardiogram, that shows you, I mean, you'll explain better to me and to the listeners, and if that's showing you heart muscle, does it actually show you the, the blood vessels? I mean, it's not an angiogram. It's, how is no, it but in, in, kids, in kids, you can see the coronary arteries fairly well, the size of the coronary arteries. Not, oh, you can't see, yeah. Adults, not so much because they're just bigger, but in but young children and teenagers, you can see the coronaries. What about the EKG? Can that show you anything or that would be too um, insensitive? It can if there's severe involvement of the heart muscle. We've seen ST and T wave abnormalities, but it is not great for um, more mild coronary abnormalities because those don't, don't show up as ischemia. Okay. And what about their blood pressure again, too? Does it, um, we're going to get to this with COVID after, but does their blood pressure because of this coronary artery syndrome, does their blood pressure go high, I mean, which would be unusual for you know, a child? No, in typical Kawasaki, they present with um, some tachycardia related to the fever, but normal blood pressure. Like you were alluding to, the, with this new inflammatory system, there's a system, sorry, multi-system it's inflammatory so syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, name. yeah. Exactly. There's a couple, but none of them are perfect. Children are often presented with low blood pressure, but that's not related yeah. to the coronaries. It's related to the kind of shock. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into that. Yeah. That's an important point. Well, Okay, let me ask you this too, because I, I may have mentioned to you before we even did the podcast, but 
So which which has fascinated me now. You know, Kawasaki's disease was I think discovered in 1967, and obviously for the longest time we did not know what was causing it. It's been labeled as an autoimmune process, autoinflammatory process. Obviously, there's always the suspicions: was there an infection that we've never uncovered? And I don't know. Is there any area of the world where it's more prevalent? Obviously, it was discovered I think in Japan and then in Hawaii, but is Asia more common to get it than the United States? And and why don't even adults get this disease? Yeah, so the, all good questions. So they, um, it was first described in Japan, and it's actually uh, the highest prevalence is in Japan, where it's about 10 times more common than in the United States. And it does seem that there's, based on your ethnicity, some genetic differences in susceptibility, because those rates are higher also for children of Asian descent who move to the United States. Um, so it there may be some location effect, but it's mostly a genetic effect. Um, we still don't know entirely why, why adults don't get this. Kawasaki disease is really a disease of infants and young children. It rarely occurs after about 8 to 10 years of age. And the immunologic reason for that is still not known. Uh, you know, to me also just, you know, again, maybe, you know, it would fit the mystery story, like how it could be some kind of coronavirus thing that was never discovered before. You know, again, I, I think I'd ask you this. If they had collect, I'm sure they probably do at Boston Children's have samples from patients over the years that are frozen to go back and look because, again, the mystery, it almost sounds like a pediatric infection that obviously, fortunately, filters itself out. But the, the strange thing is also that it's never been known to be contagious in Kawasaki's, right? I mean, you've never heard of a parent getting it from a child or anything like that. Correct. In itself, the disease is not contagious. It does seem to have an environmental trigger because there, there have been reports of little epidemics Whereas there's some sort of, like, like this, but much less severe, where there's some circulating virus that seems to be triggering um, this immune response. So that we, we have some clues as to that, that it's some sort of environmental trigger, possibly multiple different viruses or even fungi that are circulating in the environment and then that trigger this immune response in certain genetically susceptible people. Have, you, have they ever seen, because I'm sure you're really familiar with the literature, have you ever seen like, like reports or case reports where it's occurred in families, like where a bunch of members of a family developed it, or is it always these isolated cases? Not at the same time, not like as if it, it not related, but we have seen, and we do know that um, siblings and identical twins especially have a higher rate over time. So if one, say you're an identical twin and one of the twins has it because they have, they're genetically identical, this other twin has a, high, a rate is up to as high as like 10 to 15% of someday developing KD, which is way higher than the general population, which all gives us a clue that somehow this is your genetic predisposition to the disease does matter. And we've even mm -hmm. seen parents, a parent who had it back in the 70s or 80s, and then their child has it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Decades later. Yeah. You know, the great news for Kawasaki's disease, as you well know, is that there's an effective treatment, you know, intravenous gamma globulin. I'm an, I'm an immunologist, so I, lo I love IVIG. I think it does so many good things that are, you know, it's not used enough. And also aspirin. So can you maybe explain why this has been the, so the, pretty much the treatment for the complication of Kawasaki disease, the coronary treatments, and why it works so well and in treating the dangerous, you know, cardiac complications? Yeah. So initially in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, there was no treatment and people tried steroids. Uh, on an ad hoc basis, and it wasn't clear that the steroids were helping. In fact, there was some concern that steroids by themselves were making the coronary artery aneurysms more likely. Uh, and then there was a trial in the mid-80s that showed if you give IVIG to patients with Kawasaki disease, you have a five- to six-fold decrease in the incidence of coronary aneurysms, so much, much lower rate of coronary aneurysms. And they got better faster in terms of their fever. 
And so since that time, it's been the standard of care. IVIG has pooled Ig antibodies from people, and so it has broad kind of immunomodulator and immunoprotective effects. But the exact mechanism of even what IVIG is doing is not entirely known either. And they they typically need just like one dose, right? It's not like they need uh, like a five day course or like yeah, it's it's a big dose in kids. It's 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 two grams per kilogram, which is quite a large dose, and it's um, usually given once. And then 85% of kids have a clinical response, meaning their fever goes away and their inflammatory markers get better. Well, that's 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15%, 15% yeah. 15% of kids do get more therapy because of what we call IVIG resistance, which is basically persistent fever. Yeah. And the aspirin is just blocked, uh, the clotting. I, I think sometimes, did some of these patients get high platelet counts also? Yes, exactly. So uh, traditionally it was given in very high doses for the anti-inflammatory effects, but nowadays we've realized that IVIG is what really matters. And so we mostly go to um, low-dose aspirin, which is an antiplatelet dose, just because of the risk for thrombosis if you have coronary aneurysms. And you're exactly right, especially in the second and third weeks of illness, a lot of children develop a very high platelet count with platelets of the blood clotting elements. So we obviously concerned that they could be at risk for um, thrombosis or clots. Well, okay. So this is, I mean, hopefully people get the background of what Kawasaki's disease, the mystery how it's very similar in some ways to COVID-19 and hopefully we're going to learn how to use it to help treat these kids. Uh, the transition to COVID-19, Dr. Ben, first thing I want to ask you, this is, I, I gave this some thought, you know, when this whole thing was going on, as you know, again, cause you are a cardiologist, pediatric cardiologist, you know, the heart is a pump organ, you know, in contrast to the kidneys or the liver, which I would tend to give the term a filter organ. Why is it rare to get a viral infection or autoimmune inflammation in the heart compared to the liver. Because like, you know, for example, liver, we know about hepatitis, you know, A, B, C, and D, you know, meningitis in kids. Well, why is it so rare to have like a viral myocarditis and inflammation or, a, you know, some type of autoimmune disease of the heart? So in children, I don't think it's that rare compared to other severe viral infections of organs. So we do see idiopathic or viral myocarditis um, the incidence is generally very low, but it's got to have something to do with what the viruses are, what, what, what organs they're trophic to, basically, what organs they're attracted to. And the heart is generally spared, especially in adults. But we definitely do see biomyocarditis, which can be quite severe in a handful of kids every year at, at our hospital and throughout the country. But it, it is, I would agree with you, quite rare. You know, you know what I thought? I'm just curious, you're famous. I always thought, you know, when you think about the heart, it's a pump. And the blood is circulating fairly quickly compared to other organs where it's filtering through. So it's almost like the virus, it's like, it's like going through a fast stream. The virus doesn't have time to adhere to the tissue. And my other thought about it is, is that, you know, my, the heart, can, I, to some degree, tends to be one of the organs that doesn't have a lot of immune cells, right? I mean, even though we do see in myocardial infarctions, we do sometimes see lymphocytes come in. But, you know, other tissues like the spleen, liver, kidney, they all have immune cells in them to help fight infection. So uh, I don't know. It's just uh, the thought of mine like, that just kind of struck me. Because obviously having an infection in the heart, you know, is like the motor going dead in a car. Yeah, for sure. There's no lymph tissue or other, like you said, filtering function or tissue in the heart. And that may be part of it. We, there's a lot we still don't understand uh, about viral myocarditis in general, uh, much less the COVID-associated form. Yeah. So what would you say, I mean, I, I, we kind of led into this, so what would you say are the presenting symptoms for COVID-19 in, in children that parents should be on the lookout for? So I think there's, there's, two, there's two parts to this. One is the direct COVID infection, kind of acutely when other people in the family may have it. And there are still some kids who are presenting with more typical um, 
respiratory features like adults. Um, and so those are usually earlier on when the rest of the family is exposed. And then this, and those kids are often presenting similar to adults. It seems like most kids are spared from that, fortunately. The, the initial reports from China didn't report, basically reported almost no kids getting sick. Um, we've learned that a, a handful of kids do get sick from that acute kind of infectious period, and it's often with respiratory symptoms like the adults would. And those are often kids with other medical comorbidities or higher-risk kids. And then the, the second phase is that we're seeing now with this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is that later on, something like three to six weeks after an acute exposure, kids are presenting with this immunological response. And that's presenting very differently with very high fevers, um, usually not much in the way of respiratory symptoms, um, often with um, either features of Kawasaki disease, which we just talked about before, and or very prominent gastrointestinal symptoms like vomiting, um, diarrhea, or severe abdominal pain. You know, the other thing, too, which is obviously so frightening, and I, I'm not sure parents would always pick this up, is this low pulse and low blood pressure. And again, I want to hear your opinion if you think it's due to the actual infection in the myocardial muscle, because children typically, you know, they'll have a lower, possibly a lower pulse or blood pressure than an adult. Most of the time, I'm sure even in pediatrics, they don't even take the blood pressure on children, right? I mean, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't even know back in the day, I don't check a lot of times when I, I see you know, kids for allergies or immunological issues. I don't even check their blood pressure. So what would, what would be a, a striking low blood pressure to you? if you Yeah, are... blood pressure Yeah, blood pressure is very age-dependent. So um, you're right. A lot of times in a general pediatrician office, it's either not taken or not taken very accurately because it can be hard to take, especially in a crying child. But it's age-dependent. So for a, 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 a young child, say under 10, you know, their blood pressure should be systolics in 80s or 90s or higher. But we're sometimes seeing kids presenting with systolics in the 60s and 70s. And then as you get towards the teenage years, it's more towards a typical normal adult blood pressure, one teens, Wait, so what, what would get your attention? Let's say, you know, like this kid, Jack, 14, 15 years old, if he came in, you know, if you were called into the ER to see him and he was having the fever and you're trying to decide and you, what, if his blood pressure was low, what would get your attention? Yeah, I mean, we in young, healthy kids, we sometimes see blood pressures down systolics as low as the 90s or 100s, but, but usually not below that. So something like in the 70s or 80s would certainly be very concerning. And I think just as importantly as the blood pressure is his overall mentation and urine output and kind of a global assessment of is he delivering adequate blood flow and oxygen delivery to his tissues. And when you see both low blood pressure and inadequate blood flow to the tissues, it's really defining shock. And that's what a subset of these children are presenting with, which is hemodynamic shock. And that can be for multiple reasons. One is that the heart muscle is not pumping as well as it should be. And two is a, a distributive shock where the blood vessels get very dilated and um, the blood flow is just not going to the vital organs as much as it should be. And blood's kind of being rerouted uh, in, in adverse ways. And, and what about also like the heart rate? They're reporting very low heart rates in some of these cases, obviously, as they started going to shock. And is that due also sometimes also to a heart block? Is that are you guys seeing that at all? Like where? Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of these kids are going to prevent with pretty severe tachycardia if they're in low cardiac output and shock um, as a as a response to try to you know increase the heart rate to therefore increase the amount of blood getting out to their organs and increase the oxygen delivery. We have very we have seen one case of complete heart block associated with uh, this new sin, inflammatory syndrome. So that is um, rare, but seems to be possible. Okay. How are you treating the children that are in, you know, these more, you know, later stages of this multi-system organ 
inflammation. Are you using gamma globulin? Are you using convalescent serum or any of the new antivirals like remdesivir or any of the IL-6 blockers? Yep. So all, all that. You're using all of that. Yep. So what the, the first-line therapy in most institutions has been intravenous immunoglobulin from the Kawasaki disease experience, and that seems to be giving good results. People have also used steroids because of their broad immunosuppressive right. yeah, effects. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then um, anakinra, which is an interleukin-1 inhibitor, um, has been used as well. When kids are still actively viremic and have a positive acute PCR test, we have in a handful of kids used remdesivir as well. But most of these kids are presenting actually later where their PCR is no longer positive and they're just antibody positive. So it's a, a prior exposure. So we aren't, all, we're usually not directly treating the viral infection because it's usually uh, essentially past already. Got it. Right. That's important. That's a really important point. I just want to clarify it for the listeners because they're taking it through if they listen to my other podcast on the whole sequence of this. So yeah, what you're basically saying is you're, because you know, this, they brought this up a lot. A lot of times these kids are PCR, you know, if they do the nasal swab, they're negative. And, and you know, unless they have the antibody tests, you know, it's, it throws people off. They don't even suspect that they have COVID. But, so what you're saying is at the point a lot of times that you're seeing them when they're really sick, at that point, to slow the viral load down, that's not the issue. It's really just tampering down the immune system. Exactly. And also the, the treatment's mostly supportive and then tr- treating the basically hyperimmune response with immunosuppressants. And that's where the IVIG steroids and, and then some more targeted therapy like interleukin blockers come in. Mm, okay. Have you seen a fairly good um, uh, outcomes with the patients that you've been treating now at Boston Children's that, that are presented? Maybe. Yeah, I know in New York, they've reported three deaths and they've certainly seen more of it in New York. We're just, I think, getting hit with it in the last week or two. Yeah. Um, the number of cases have gone ex- exponentially. And we've seen a whole spectrum from kids who are really sick and need to be in an ICU and uh, very hypotensive to kids who are febrile and inflamed, but generally fairly well. And, and unfortunately, with in- intravenous immunoglobulin and in some cases steroids, we've had really good outcomes. The cardiac dysfunction has um, resolved in virtually all the cases over the course of five to seven days or sooner. Um, we've had not had to use ECMO at our hospital and we've had no deaths. So um, certainly the New York experience is concerning, but I, I, I wonder if part of that was it's kind of the initial learning curve and people were presenting very late because our experience has been um, probably of a less severe disease so far. Yeah, you, know, you guys are fortunate so far. Okay, we're going to go to my final question I have for you. Dr. Friedman, all of a sudden your phone rings, the White House task force calls you up. Dr. Friedman, because of the complications we're seeing in some children, but not, but it's still rare, what's your opinion about children returning to school in the fall? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> no easy answer. Um, I think in general, taking a step back, children are still largely spared in this disease compared to adults. Right. Um, this new syndrome is certainly concerning, but the number of cases is, is minute compared to the number of adults afflicted with this disease um, directly. So I think for a parent, I think it's important to be aware of and for policymakers to be aware of, but I don't think this should change the global health policy. And if coronavirus rates are low enough in a a region, then I think that the risk is really low of this syndrome. It's already really low, but even lower if if we've tampered down the degree of circulating coronavirus enough. Do you think the children should be able to go back to school and hopefully their distance from the teacher it shouldn't be that much of an issue. I think if adults are going back to work, then kids can go back to school. Okay. Yeah. I think otherwise there's going to be more terror in this country. Yeah. I think in regions yeah. who are still having significant 
outbreaks are significant prevalence, then it, it, it's probably not a good idea for adults or children. But I, I think children are, are spared compared to adults overall. So yeah, um, that's really good news. That is good news. All right. Well, I, again, in concluding this, I you know as this pandemic goes on and more doctors are finding new twists and turns to deal with this, I want to thank Dr. Friedman for taking the time in his busy schedule to to educate all of us on how to help those children that become infected with the virus. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. If you have any comments or questions, you can go to my Facebook or Instagram site, Dean Mitchell MD. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks again, Dr. Friedman. Thank you very much for having me. Good luck. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.